When you look head on into the future of your ranch, are your management decisions and day-to-day operations creating a viable multi-generational business or is it over when you're done? Some people would rather go broke running their place the way they are than, than change and keep it going for another generation. So making critical management changes in your operation that move away from traditional practices can be hard. Kurt Milimaki, a rancher and farmer in Stanford, Montana, joins me today as we talk about how they migrated their operation away from some traditional practices they felt were creating too much stress and strain on their land, livestock, and their own quality of life. And in the long run, the future of their operation. There's a lot of pressure to keep doing things the way that previous generations have done things or the way your neighbors do them. What were some of those changes they made? Find out on today's episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show. Welcome to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. Thanks for joining us here on our program. And if this is your very first time of listening to Working Ranch Radio Show, we thank you for tuning in. And if by chance you're listening on the radio and you have to step away for a minute and you want to go back and listen to it again, you can find all of our shows that we had on workingranchradio.com is the podcast site. Or if you have a more preferred podcast site like Pandora or Spotify or Google or Apple or any of those, you can go and listen to it through that as well. I want to mention, you know, um, we were looking through some records the other day. We have listeners in over 83 countries. Yeah, over 83 countries that listen to the Working Ranch Radio Show. So for those listening in Australia here for this week's show, a shout out to you. Throw another shrimp on the bobby, shall we? And we appreciate you tuning in here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. On our program here today, we have Kurt Milimaki joining us. He is with Milimaki Farms out of Stanford, Montana. Now, their ranch is also the Montana Leopold Conservation Award winners for 2023. And we're going to talk about about some of the practices that they have moved ahead with in the last several years to not only from a conservation standpoint, which is what that award recognized, but they were also doing it not for the award. They were doing it because they realized that if they didn't make some changes, the financial viability of their ranching operation and farming operation could be in jeopardy down the road. So we're going to talk about some of those changes that they made. And uh, and I think you'll find it interesting as we have that discussion today with Kurt Milimaki, he and his wife wife, uh, PJ, their two kids, uh, Katie and Cameron and his dad, Bruce, all on their ranching operation there in Stanford, Montana. So be sure to tune in for that. Right now, thank you to our sponsors of the Working Ranch Radio Show. All Flex, cattle identification and record keeping should be easy. You can tie your visual tag, EID tag, and your genetic data to one management number with the All Flex match sets. You can find out more at allflexusa.com. Inherit Select from Zoetis, providing commercial cow-calf producers with genetic insight to make replacement female selection and breeding decisions. Find out more at InheritProgress.com. The American Gelvie Association, a highly fertile, moderately framed cow that raises high-performing calves even in tough environments. Now that's doing more with less. The Gelvie cow's efficient use of resources make her the picture of sustainability in today's modern beef industry. Find out more at Gelvie.org. And MLS Tubs, don't gamble with breeding season, MLS Tubs are a sure bet. Learn more about MLS Tubs at MLSTubs.com. And finally, Tank Toad. It's the remote water monitoring system we use here on the X-Ring Ranch. I can keep an eye on my water supply. The cistern tanks from the uh, convenience of my phone with satellite or cell type systems. Call Metal Arc Solutions today for tank monitors, well controllers, generators, and more at 801-252-6135 or the website tanktoad.com. Well, let's check in now with the Captain Tim O'Byrne for this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents. Hey, Justin. Hey, everybody out there in Working Ranch Radio Land. First of all, a big shout out to all of you that join us on our Facebook Friday post. You guys 
uh, let us know what you're doing in photography and video and just uh, touch and base with stories. We just love it when you do that. Justin, my two cents today is uh, it's it's about your last episode. Uh, your guest was Keith Harmony with KSU, and you talked about uh, drought st- strategies and that sort of thing. And you mentioned, uh, you asked a really good question, the difference between stocking rate and stocking density, and I want you to re—I want you to let us know what what that uh, definition, what the difference is again, just so everybody kind of gets it in their head. Because I know I had to rewind it a couple of times, and uh, it was a great point. So hit it. All right, Captain. Well, I'll try to do the best I can. Here are some kind of some simplistic ways to look at those two terms of stocking rate versus stocking density. Now, stocking rate is just the measure of the land's carrying capacity or amount of its forage production. And of course, forage production has a lot to do with uh, precipitation and where you're at. So in drier climates, for example, uh, where we're at here in northeastern Wyoming, our stocking rate number would sound something like this, that it takes 35 acres to run a cow. Uh, usually that would be considered a, a cow-calf pair for the year for a given year. So that would be our number here. Now for folks uh, in more wetter climates that have uh, more forage production, you're going to hear uh, their stocking rate number sound more like this, and it's going to be X amount of cows per acre. So that's stocking rate. Stocking density, on the other hand, is just the amount of stock present on the land at any given time. And it really has a lot to do with uh, an indicator of management techniques. For example, mob grazing or high intensive grazing where they're going to bring those animals together and create a higher stocking density but make smaller paddocks in an effort to improve soil conditions and improve grass growth and also you know they're going to hit those 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 areas and be off them give them a long rest period and not come back. This again it's more of a management technique than it is uh, has to do with really the carrying capacity. Again stocking rate is carrying capacity. Stocking density is just the amount of stock present on the land. So I hope that's as clear as mud (laughs) for you. And it was a good show. Our last show, episode 121. Now, last week, we actually didn't have a show. We had to rerun the previous week's show because I had a little bit of a horse wreck and ended up breaking my ankle with the horse that uh, rolled, uh, fell and and rolled with me. Uh, We recovered. Hopefully, we've got to be off the foot for a little bit, but that's why we didn't have a show last week. We're on the mend and it's a terrible time of the year to be having to deal with this but nevertheless that's just way the cookie crumbles so we're moving forward well stay with us when we come back we're going to get into our show here today as kurt milimaki will be joining us we're going to be talking about some of the changes they made in their operation as they looked at how this would look for the future of passing this down to the next generation we'll talk about that when we return on the working ranch radio show Now let's hear what Two Rivers, land and cattle of Miami County, Kansas, has to say about MLS tubs. MLS number one tubs have given my operation a big boost. We had over 50% of our cows serviced in the first 21 days, and 93% of our heifers bred in 60 days this past year. The tubs release rate is consistent and convenient for our cattle row crop operation. We made a good decision switching to MLS. Don't gamble with breeding season. MLS tubs are a sure bet. Learn more about MLS tubs at mlstubs.com. And we welcome you to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills as we head now into our featured interview here today. As we talk about, you know, a lot of us in in the ranching industry, for a lot of us, we've grown up uh, in the industry. Maybe you haven't, and yet you've been around other places that have uh, done things uh, over the last several years. And at some point, you know that maybe some changes need to be made. And so our show here today is going to be focusing a little bit on that as we visit with uh, a ranching and a farming operation out of Montana that has made that evolution of change in their operation in ways that they knew that in order to be sustainable, in order to get to the next generation, it was going to require some changes. And we're going to talk about that here today. So joining me on our program is Kurt Milimaki. Kurt, thanks for joining us here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. 
Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Well, this time of the year for any of us is busy, and I know you're probably in the middle of calving and at the same time uh, spring crops and a lot of things, so I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Before we get into some of the details that I really want to get into, let's talk a little bit about Stanford, Montana. Almost if you just drew an X through Montana, you'd almost land in Stanford, Montana. And so let's talk about, first of all, the climate there and, and what you, if you were looking out your window right now, describe what we'd be seeing. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, Stanford, Montana is is located in Judith Basin County, which is in right about in the center of the state. And uh, we can see seven different uh groups of mountains from our yard here and and we get plenty of of wind and uh, not much rain the last couple of years but on a normalish sort of year we'd be 12 to 14 inches um fairly open winters we get chinook winds and which warm up and and take care of most of our snow but i guess the wind uh, we don't we're never usually the hot spot in the state and we're never the never usually the cold spot too often mm-hmm. um but it's a it's a pretty good spot here in the middle of the state and we've had a good good amount of moisture this year so it's been a good change from the last two years of of drought and grasshoppers and and whatnot so <laughs> yeah you you hit on wind a couple times we'll go back to that folks and i think you need to understand that wind erosion is a big deal in this part of the country in fact in the judith basin there they also have wind turbines so if that gives you any indication uh wind in that part of the country is a big deal and we're going to talk a bit about why they've made some of the changes that really has a lot to do with with wind erosion in that let's talk about just typically if you're going to drive around the county of judith basin county in montana what would we see for enterprises that the the ranches or farms would what would we see when we're driving around the county so the stanford area is more heavy cow calf operations uh multi-generational family places ranches um there's we're close to the the little belt mountains and so there's mountain places and then we're more out on the on the flats and so there's a little bit of everything and then we get closer into the Arrow Creek breaks and Arrow Creek runs into uh into the Missouri then or into the Judith right before the Missouri River but um so there's a, a difference in topography but there is a lot of diversity of crops that are grown in the area too wheat is our main one but then we also have uh malt barley and um, a lot of pulse crops, peas, chickpeas, uh, lentils that are grown in the area as well. And there's a lot of uh, wheat continuous crop every all of our farm ground, but there is a lot of uh, fallow ground in the area and a lot of hay production. Most years, last two years has been a an importer of hay into this region, but normally would be a, a big exporter of, of hay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not much, not much irrigation also. Uh, very, very little irrigation in the area. It's almost all dry land, farm ground and and hay ground. Mm-hmm. Well, Kurt, we're going to get into basically where where you started from several years ago, what you saw as you knew that this was going to be an operation you were going to be taking over your dad is there on the place with you as well but knowing that really there were there were going to be some changes that needed to be made and and folks before we get into that one of the things i do want to note here and i failed to mention this at the very beginning but Millimackie Farms there in Stanford, they are this year's Montana Leopold Conservation Award winner. And uh, Kurt and his wife, PJ, and his uh, kids, Katie and Cameron, are on the place there. And, and really, the, the point of this was is that it, it recognizes operations that are putting into place conservation practices. And so we're going to talk about that in a bit. But if we were to step back 10, 15 years ago, Kurt, what did you see in the operation that just said, we're gonna to have to make some changes here. Yeah, so about eight, nine years ago, we used to calve in, uh, well, we'd start like the very last couple of days of January and we'd calve through February and March. And we had we had started to do some, um, this was like 2014, 2015. So again, when the market was, cattle market was at a high mm-hmm. and we were making pretty good money, but we, knew it wouldn't last forever and we wanted to figure out a way that we could expand and continue to make uh, money the way we were then and so our calving in february that particular time we had a really bad winter one year and we had 30 below 
40 below wind chills for a week. And we knew that to continue that time of year, if we wanted to expand our herd, we'd have to put up another barn and because we had kind of outgrown our old one. And so then I started looking into how could we eliminate feeding hay and then which led us into like May, June calving, which also eliminated the need for a, a barn. And so that's that's kind of where where we ended up taking our place was to uh, to really address our hay feeding and then also just not having to put as much money into capital expenses, I guess. That was kind of what, what led us into that change about 2015-ish. Mm-hmm. Kurt, real quick, a couple questions in regard to that change that you made there. First of all, I know that calving in February in that part of of Montana, especially where you see a lot more farming enterprises in there, that early early calving is kind of a normal thing. What the mm-hmm. neighbor What the neighbors think when you made the change? Mm-hmm. Um, not, I didn't get too much uh, as far as comments. I guess uh, it was. Uh, I think that first year when we did it, it was really a pretty nice february and so there was a lot of people that said well i bet you wish you were calving <laughs> yeah. now and um but because we weren't our cows weren't at a nutritional requirement that we had to feed we weren't feeding any hay that february so it didn't really bother me that it was was nice out it was nice for all of them to be calving but um yeah there is a lot of people that farm that like to get the calving done and over with before they get in the fields and and it does make for a busy time for us and in May and in June when we're calving and and farming, but but we don't have to do as much with them either as we used to. When we were in February and March, we used to do night checks and run them through a barn and um, band them and tag them and run them through jugs and clean them out a barn and wow. bedding the barn and and we don't have to do we don't do any of that stuff anymore. And so it's it's really it, it's a lot better quality of life. And then we're making you know we're doing well money wise too with, with those changes, yeah. not feeding any or little hay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, real quick from a very technical standpoint, when you made mm-hmm. that move with your cow herd, did you uh, just take your cow herd down to that time frame? Uh, and if you did, did you see any, did, did you have any issues when you did that or did you sell out and buy, buy May calvers? So uh, no, we, we kept our own cows and we, we did the move in one year from February 1st to, uh, or, or so till, to, uh, August, well, it was August 1st turnout, which is May 10th. Mm-hmm. And we just did it in one year and we had a really good breed up that first year, like 96%. Um, and so we were pretty happy with it and thought that was fairly easy transition to make, but yeah, there is some, some people that have sold their cows. Um, I guess we were used to our cows. We knew our cows, they knew our place. And so that's why we decided not to do that. And we had some fallout the first year or two, just cows that wouldn't fit into that system that were harder keepers that either didn't make it through the winter that well, or when they got onto green grass had too much milk. Um, And then when we were calving and they just got little tiny baby calves, ones that weren't really a problem back when we were feeding hay, by the time we hit green grass, their calves were were plenty big to keep up with them but then when they got to where they were out on green grass or a grass alfalfa mix for a for a while and they we had some some pretty big uh milk cow looking cows out there for a while but it took some time and we knew that would maybe be the case but we just wanted to kind of let nature yeah, uh yeah. run its course and pick them out for us i guess yeah Kurt Millimackie is my guest here today. Uh, their family ranch, Millimackie Farms out of Stanford, Montana. They are this year's Montana Leopold Conservation Award. We are talking about our whole show today is going to be dedicated about how they made that transition from being a pretty high intensive uh, labor standpoint operation to moving away from some of that labor for a lot of reasons. We've talked about some of those already. We're going to continue our conversation with Kurt when we come back here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Every year you pick your replacement heifers. Some become profitable cows, others disappoint. How can you make more reliable selections? Genetic testing. Commercial cow-calf producers like you are using Inherit Select from Zoetis. You gain valuable predictions, including cow fertility, size and soundness, feed efficiency, growth and carcass merit 
as well as easy-to-use economic indexes. This improves your selection, breeding, and marketing decisions. Request a call from InheritProgress.com and ask about free TSUs to get you started. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. My guest today is Kurt Milamaki out of Stanford, Montana with Milamaki Farms. We're talking about the change that they've made in their ranching operations uh, back to about 2014 is when they started making some changes, knowing that some of the labor that they were putting into their ranch and farming operations just could not be sustained if they were uh, for several reasons, whether it was a financial situation or whether it was just the quality of life that they wanted to have. And so, uh, Kurt, again, thanks for joining us here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. As we talked in the last uh, segment a little bit about your cattle operation, let's touch briefly a bit on your farming operation. I got folks, I got to tell you, uh, before we started the conversation here today, Kurt asked me, he said, he said, hey, is it okay if we talk about farming because you're a ranching show? (laughs) And I said, oh, absolutely. There's a lot of folks that are ranchers and farmers both. But uh, I know, and, and you talked a bit ago about wind, and I know that was a big, that drove a lot of your decision making in terms of how you changed and evolved with your with your farming practices so let's talk about what was happening prior to the changes you made and then let's talk about the, what you did to address those issues that you were concerned about okay well yeah we've we've never had real significant wind erosion on our place but we've seen it in our area um for sure and a lot of it is fallow ground and pulse crops that just don't leave very much above ground residue, especially after they're they're harvested. And so um, we didn't want to be in that sort of an issue. And and continuous cropping really addresses that for the for the most part, just having something growing on the field as much as possible. But then we uh, and not disturbing the soil. So we we went uh, about seven eight years. We went to a disc drill, no till disc drill, and then. Um, also a stripper header for harvesting our small grains. And so that has really allowed us to have a lot more um, protection for the soil from from the winds. And it's protects the new seedlings that come the next year when they're just uh, little. You know, when we say wind here, I mean, we can get, you know, 60, 70, 80 mile an hour winds at times. Um, and so it can do a lot of damage in a in a hurry if if the ground's bare out there. But then that more residue, we get it down on the on the soil. Then we then when we cover it, it stays cooler, which helps the soil biology and also makes our limited uh, moisture last longer because um, the wind will dry the the ground out quicker too, and it makes it last a lot longer if we can keep the ground covered so mm-hmm. tell us how you've integrated you're integrating your the ranching operation with the farming operation and you know i know you got cover crops growing and, and some grazing on some of these crops let's talk about the integration between those two segments of your operation yeah they used to be pretty much separate um we had a lot of farm ground that's just out that didn't have fences on it and so we've gone through and fenced off most of our deeded acres um with permanent electric fence and then we uh graze crop aftermath and regrowth and volunteer stuff and then we also seed about 10 percent of our acres into cover crops every year multi-species uh warm season dominant cover crops that we graze then in the uh, late fall and into the winter to give our grazing land more rest and recovery time and then also to integrate our livestock into the farm ground and we do it that time of year because our farm ground doesn't have water on it and we have to um, at least as of today we still have to haul water to them and so if we if we're in there in the winter time this is after we've weaned so the cows aren't lactating anymore and they and if we get some snow moisture they just don't have the water requirements and it's not that big of a of a job i guess to haul them water and we're we are moving our cows as much as possible and so a lot of times we're just hauling out once a day and moving them and then we're done so Mm -hmm. it's not not too big of a deal for the um amount of hay that we're we're saving in the operation mm-hmm. kurt i'm going to ask you a question that i i feel like and i can ask because uh you've got some publicity on your ranching operation farming operation about the scope and size of your ranch but normally as ranchers and uh, we don't really ask each other how big you know how big is your ranch how many cattle you're running but in light of the fact that you have some some public accolades here on this let's talk about the size and the scope of your operations 
Okay, so we farm about 6,000 acres of dry land, farm ground, and then we run, up, well, the whole place deeded and leased is around 10,000 acres, uh, but that's about 4,000 then of grazing lands. And we, we were running close to 300 head a couple years ago, but because of destocking uh, during the drought, we're about half of that right now. So we're at about 150 mother cows. And then we also background our own calves over the winter and then do some custom feeding of uh, replacement heifer calves. Okay. I should have thrown that question in earlier, but but I yeah, forgot I to ask you that. <laughs> so, okay. I want to go quickly back to the grazing and on some of your farm ground that you've done or you're doing. Making that change of not haying to grazing was that a tough decision and and tell me as you went through that mentally you know what how did that go well it, it was a fairly easy decision at the time we had fairly new haying equipment and so we were able to get a pretty good amount of money from selling the haying equipment and then we were started grazing um those hay fields and so that allowed us to graze more days and then at the time hay wasn't like it priced like it is yeah. these last two years it was it was fairly cheap and i felt like we could buy it i mean i was buying those first few years after we sold that we were buying a lot of hay for 80 bucks a ton mm-hmm. and that with the cost of what we were paying for hay and the machinery and everything i felt like we were we were better off buying it at that price than we were putting up our our own and anytime you hay stuff and then if it's not a lot of ours wasn't fed back on that same hay field so we're taking that residue and carbon off of that field and then we're feeding it in a lot it just was a bad move for our soils um as far as cycling through the soil and so that was we thought it was a better move for us financially and it freed up a lot more time for us to do other things in the summer that we, uh, there was a little bit of a burnout factor in that too, that we went from calving at that time when we were calving in February and March, we went from calving to seeding, mm-hmm. to spraying, to hang, to harvest, and then and then mm-hmm. to seeding again in the fall. And we never really got too much of a break to, to do anything. And then when we got to the fall and we were supposed to start fall yeah. projects, then we were, we were <laughs> like, nah, I don't, I don't think we're going to get to that this year. And so it was nice to, to kind of mm-hmm. free up that time. And, and it worked good. We had a, a neighbor at the time that had bought the haying equipment from us and he had a lot of cows and not much hay ground and so it worked out it worked out fairly well that he didn't have a bunch of other haying to do and then he'd get to ours he was kind of able to just do ours and so it got put up in a good timely fashion and it, and it worked out well yeah Kurt, you talked about, you know, when you first started this, the hay was pretty cheap that was those years. And I remember that. I remember being able to buy hay uh, several years ago. And I think one winter when I had to buy a little bit of hay, my average price was a 105 a ton delivered, delivered in, sitting in. Yeah. Um, but that's not the case the last couple of years. How did you get through the last couple of years with those with these exorbitant prices on hay? How did you know, what did you do from a management standpoint? Well, so the first year because we hadn't fed much hay over the last two years uh or the previous couple of years two years ago we were we we got through with minimal hay we still had we had grown a decent amount of grass early that year before it got really dry and then the hay that we were feeding over the winter that year was still that 80 dollar a ton hay even though it was two three years old um and it was still in good good quality and so we were able to get by without feeding too much hay that first year but this last year yeah we had to we had to to buy quite a bit and it was it was expensive mm-hmm. and some of it came from far eastern montana <laughs> and some of it came from idaho and but it was good quality hay and and we just got through it like like everybody else but it was it, it wasn't ideal i i would prefer to to graze all year and the way this year's starting out it, it looks like we can hopefully get back to to that where we we used to feed when we calved in february and march we would feed i think it's pretty common for guys around here to feed two to three tons per cow mm-hmm. over the winter wow. and we were probably doing four to five hundred pounds oh really um the last few years until um until this year and we were probably back up to that you know maybe a ton and a half so still not because we had reduced our our herd size and we had some volunteer uh winter wheat that we were able to to graze last fall and so that 
that helped, but it, and we didn't even graze our cover crops last year because they didn't, um, that was part of the, the wind erosion, I guess, getting back to that is cover crops, cows love warm season grasses and collards and turnips and stuff, and they'll just eat it down to, to bare ground. So as far as the grazing that we do, I mean, you, I've seen guys seed cover crops, turn their cows out in there and just leave them. And then their fields blow, mm -hmm. um, by the, you know, the middle of winter because it's, 50 degrees and there's no snow and the winds blowing 50 miles an hour. And so, um, we're, we left that residue there, um, which wasn't a whole lot between the drought and grasshoppers that so we just left it lot. there for yeah. the, for the soil and we didn't do it. And we had to buy more hay because of that. But I think ultimately in the long run, it was a better move for, for our land. Yeah. Kurt Millimackie is my guest today with Millimackie Farms out of Stanford, Montana. We're talking about the changes that they've made over the last several years, moving from a very high intensive labor operation, ranching and farming operation to moving uh, more to a uh, little bit less intensive in some of those uh, times of the year and, and calving in the winter and, and then spring planting. And as he went through that list of things that they were busy from February all the way till uh, Thanksgiving, probably, and just really seeing some burnout in that, talking about how they've made some changes over the last several years to correct some of that. We're going to continue with Kurt. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about some infrastructure and just if he was to sit down with you and just say, here's the things I've learned. We're going to ask him what those things are when we come back here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. A sustainable ranch is one that can do more with less. And for beef producers, it can start right at the herd level with a cow that's efficient with her resources and environment. And in today's modern industry, Gelvy females are the picture of sustainability. Gelvy and Balancer cattle are early maturing with maternal superiority through increased longevity, added fertility, and more pounds of calf wean per cow exposed. Adaptable, versatile, and sustainable. All factors that have a positive impact impact on your bottom line. Gelvy influenced females, the smart, reliable, and profitable maternal choice for achieving sustainability in today's modern beef industry. Be sustainable, breed Gelvy. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. My guest today is Kurt Millimacki with Millimacki Farms. He's out of Stanford, Montana. He, his wife, PJ, and their kids, Katie and Cameron, and his dad, Bruce, uh, all work there, uh, a part of the ranching and the farming operation there. And they've we've talked about already in our previous two segments about where they were, where they've evolved to, and and how they've, what some of those changes were in an effort to knowing that really from a sustainability standpoint, when I say sustainability, I'm not talking necessarily environmental sustainability i mean the fact that they're wanting to be an operation in the future and that involves not only our environment but it also involves making a profit and being mindful in, in managing your labor your time your resources and so uh with those changes that they made we talked a little bit about that kurt i want to get a bit into some infrastructure uh some things that that as you made these changes uh, you're sitting across the table from somebody and say okay here's some infrastructure things that you really need to be considered looking at what were some of those and what are some of those things that you would suggest? Okay, so when we, the main thing, I guess that like with our operation is that we we use the cows to, um, our, our focus is on the grazing and how we graze the cows. And we we use the cows as a tool to grow more grass. So we're, we're doing as high a stock density as we feel that we're comfortable with. If we didn't do any farming, I would probably do a higher uh, stock density or if we had yearlings, but with cow calf as, as um, intense as we can or as high stock density as we can. And we, um, so we move every day as much as we can throughout the year. And we give as long a rest periods as we can. And we've seen, um, I feel like it's made our land more resilient where it really took off this year once we saw some some moisture. And I guess the, the thing that I would I would recommend to people is is putting a focus on grazing so that you can feed less hay because that ultimately with cow calf operation is is our well, it was our biggest expense. I guess now depreciation would be, but it's it's probably, you know, it's it's in if you can swing it, you know, like this year, if we're getting paid, you know, three, four five hundred dollars more for our calves. Yeah. And then if you can reduce your cost by a, a couple hundred more 
per head, well, then that starts to look a lot better. And so we do a lot of electric fencing, a lot of poly poly wire, and those are pretty cheap, pretty cheap investments, uh, moving temporary fence. Um, I personally wouldn't put up a barbed wire fence ever again because of just how, um, I guess that's something I just do is is analyze different costs of things that we just don't use anymore. Um, I bought a, a dart gun for giving shots on the range because I thought we'd need it and I haven't used it for a couple of years now because we just don't see sick animals. And I think it's due to our grazing and that our cows are always on a high plane of nutrition year round. And so um, to me, the focus on cow-calf operations needs to be on the grazing end and not on how you put up hay and how to feed hay and stuff like that. I guess um, um, we just try to let nature do as much, I guess, as it can and, and try to stay out of its way and and learn from what we observe out there. I guess we don't, like when we're calving, we don't touch the calves. We don't, we don't tag, we don't ban, we do it all later. Um, we just let them be with their moms and we keep moving them. And as long as everybody's doing good, we just keep moving along and grazing and letting it regrow. And when I say long rest periods, I'm talking anywhere from 12 to 18 months before we'll come back. So we're there for one day in the growing season. You know, it might be less than that if we come back during the dormant time. But a lot of times it's it's not. It ends up being that, um, especially when we opened up, you know, a couple thousand acres or 3000 acres of farm ground. Mm-hmm. to to also graze and and so i i would i'm a big proponent of of electric fence and i guess that would be my mm-hmm. my biggest thing in trying to cut out as many expenses as a guy can mm-hmm. real quick i want you to go back circle back to this real quick you'd mentioned something about uh the rest or recovery period being anywhere from could be a 12 to 18 months when you're on a spot for a day or so and you move off that did you say did you come back in it in the dormant season or not it just doesn't see a cow for 12 to 18 months or do you come back to it in the dormant season we don't usually come back in the dormant season, but we we have before at at the home place here when we've weaned calves. Maybe we've let them out and you know instead of feeding them in a lot, maybe we'll mm-hmm. feed them and they'll have access to it a little bit in the dormant season, but not in the grazing season. We we tried that at first. We kind of were under this impression of uh, or I was that maybe we could graze stuff, give it forty five days or sixty days, and come back. And um, you could, um, but we've like the stuff that we started grazing the first part of May when we started calving, it looks, you know, it's fully recovered or, or back mm-hmm. bigger and, and better than when we grazed it the first time. But we've always seen where it doesn't do as well the, the following year when we've done stuff a second time okay. in the growing season. So like if we came back even early fall on that stuff, then in 24, it doesn't seem to, to do as well um, in the years that that we've done that, but we just have kind of gone away from that, yeah. I guess. And, and yeah, if you get a bunch of rain, it'll, it, sure. it, it covers up mistakes or, <laughs> or things like that, you know, that happen. I guess um, yeah. I don't like to use the word mistakes, but uh, you know, I talk with the kids about learning opportunities. And mm-hmm. so when we have something that doesn't go to plan, if we can learn from it and do better the next time, then I guess it really wasn't, yeah. wasn't a mistake, but. Okay. So you brought it up. I was going to ask this already, but you brought it up. So what are your biggest learning opportunities <laughs> that you've had? <laughs> okay. We're not going to use the M word. We'll just say what, what, just if you could go back to the last couple of years, several years, one or two of your biggest learning opportunities. Um, I guess when we, whenever we've tried to like get in the way too much because we were used to like when we calved in february and march you felt like you had to be so involved and i think sometimes when we we get more involved than we should then that's led to some some problems but um it seems like if we uh oh like we used to do a back fence behind the cows every day too and and it just it was more work than it needed to be done when you when you move them every day they they move into the new paddock and they don't go back because they've already eaten all the the good stuff and and whatnot and so just that would be an example of just you know we just open it up and we just move a back fence every every few days or whatever because this time of year we'll see regrowth in in three days um and so we try to stay at least three moves behind them with the back fence but they don't usually go back but it we don't like to give them the opportunity mm-hmm. to but um you know it's just a constant thing every 
day or every kind of different grazing situation we get in, like we went from kind of an alfalfa grass mix to then winter wheat regrowth volunteer to then back into alfalfa grass hayfield that was probably like two tons to the acre. Um, so it's just a, you know, constant of like, well, it's, you know, some days our moves are 10 acres and some days they're only like three. And and just trying to, to do that every day is, is just there's there's plenty of time for yeah. learning opportunities, I guess, in, in that <laughs> regard. But um, I guess we've been pretty fortunate in all of our changes that I guess I, I look into them quite a bit, maybe sometimes too much before we do them so that. Um, you know, we're we're right along the highway, Highway 80 here. And so when we're doing something everybody sees different, it. everybody sees it. So we're pretty sure of what we're doing before we yeah. before we do it. So nothing huge, I guess, that would that would make well, people laugh at me, I guess, on your podcast, I, I guess. <laughs> I guess part of the reason I ask that is because sometimes I think we don't move forward because we're afraid of the failure of it. And so for folks that are considering some of these changes or some of these thoughts that are like, OK, I, I hear what you're saying. I understand I want to do do that but just the fear of, of making those changes what would you tell somebody well I guess I would I would tell them to look at their current operation and if they felt like it was not sustainable then I would I would encourage them to uh, to, to look into you know if it's a cow calf operation or or maybe they don't even have to be a cow calf operation maybe it's a, a yearling operation instead of a of what maybe it's a wrong enterprise in their particular environment and not be afraid to there's a lot of pressure to keep doing things the way that previous generations have done things or the way your neighbors do them and i didn't feel like what we were doing was sustainable like it's still fairly intensive as far as labor with daily moves and stuff like that but the management is more intensive instead of the labor like i don't get up in the middle of the night to check cows like we used to you know sometimes in February, we'd be up mm -hmm. all night. Well, yeah. that to me wasn't sustainable. I wasn't going to do that forever. I looked at it and said, well, someday, you know, I'm not going to have my dad there helping me and my kids are too little and I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to stay up all night and all day. And I didn't, yeah. didn't want to, I guess, live that way. And so I guess everybody's, I mean, when we first started doing this, I thought, well, you know, people ask me and I'll try to get them to maybe change, but I, I've kind of given up on that. If people want to, change i'm i'm there to you know for you know because we didn't really have anybody in our area that was doing this kind of stuff for calving this time and so um i'm i'm more than willing i guess to talk to people when they want to but um but people have to want to do it you know kind of on their own and, and just decide if they want to do it i know uh you and i are both ranching for profit alum and i think either somebody that was teaching the class or somebody at the class. I remember saying that some people would rather go broke running their place the way they are than, than change and keep it going for another generation. So I think people just have to decide what they want to do. But to me, feeding hay, especially now when it's, you know, I, I don't know that we'll ever, I don't know if we'll ever see $80 a ton hay again, but I, um, <laughs> I, I just think it's, it's not sustainable to, to do that, to feed hay and to work against nature all the time mm -hmm. like that i guess you bet well kurt i appreciate you taking the time as as i said before this is a busy time of the year for you so i appreciate you taking the time to join us here and congratulations to you and your family on the Mon on the winning the montana leopold conservation award uh that's a, an award that uh, folks if you don't know what that means there's a lot to go into that that talks about the conservation practices that they've put into place and so congratulations on that and thanks for joining us here well, thanks. I appreciate it. And thanks for having me. And again, my guest today, Kurt Millimacki with Millimacki Farms out of Stanford, Montana. Congratulations to them. They are the Montana Leopold Conservation Award winners uh, for 2023, joining the list of several great ranching and agricultural families, not only in Montana, but other states that do the Leopold Conservation Awards. Congratulations to them. And uh, interesting to always visit with somebody as they've made that change over the last few years into uh, some very, very big changes to their ranching operations and the way they used to do things to the way they do now. Uh, that's always a challenge in the minds first before we actually put it into practice. So I hope for folks that might be considering that or thinking on these things, uh, maybe this uh, program here today is one that would give you some insight as you move forward. Like he said, he is willing to visit with folks about some of the changes that they've ma made. So if you want to reach out to him, you sure can. I will put a link to 
his email address in the description of our podcast website here today. Well, coming up next, meteorologist Don Day steps in and joins us as we take a look at our long-term weather, the North American monsoon season. Where is it at? Why is there a delay in it? We're going to talk about it when we come back on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Do you have a young child, grandchild, niece, or nephew that loves the weather and wants to learn more? Day Weather has produced a children's weather journal full of weather facts, fun weather experiments, coloring pages, and pages to record weather observations for every season of the year. The weather journal is for ages 3 to 7 and designed to be fun and educational. The interactive weather projects are fun for the whole family to take part in. For only $10, the Day Weather Weather Journal is a great gift idea for any occasion. Click on our Amazon link to order at dayweather.com. And we welcome you back to the Working Ranch Radio Show as we take a look now at our long-term weather today brought to you by AllFlex. Cattle identification and record keeping should be easy. So now you can tie your visual tag and that EID tag and your genetic data to one management number with the AllFlex match sets. You can find out more at AllFlexUSA.com. And joining us this week as he does each and every week is meteorologist Don Day. Don, thanks for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. Well, Don, before we get into the full extended look at our forecast, uh, I want to talk a little bit about what's happening to the north. And for a lot of us across the country uh, at different times, the last several weeks, we've probably experienced some smoke that's been coming from those uh, very severe fires up in Canada. But it looks like, though, that they're going to start to see some moisture into uh, British Columbia, Alberta and Saskatchewan in hopes might dampen these fires just a little bit. Yeah, there's a really good chance for a wet pattern developing over the prairie provinces of Canada, but also um, the mountainous terrain as well into uh, Alberta and eastern British Columbia's. Not only one, but two storm systems are going to slowly move through there and kind of put that part of Canada in a cooler and occasionally wet weather pattern. And it's just not kind of coming going. It's it's going to be lasting for several days where off and on chances of rain and cooler temperatures and higher humidity. You know, a lot of times, just some cloudy days with higher humidity mm-hmm. can can be very effective at you know slowing down fire activity. And then you throw rain on top of it, and that really helps. Now, whether or not it's enough to uh, put those fires out for good or something that they don't have to worry about for the rest of the year, you know, probably not, but it's certainly going to help. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, let's talk about our weather situation here uh, in, in the continental U.S. and the fact that uh, this time of the year we start to see these thunderstorms, these this this movement, a lot of that has, has to do with the North American monsoon. And uh, typically the southern part of the country, that New Mexico, Arizona, and in that area start to see some of those moistures, but we're not. And so why are we seeing a delay in the monsoon or are we going to have a a monsoon season this year? Yeah, well, those are all good questions. Um, To familiarize folks with what we're talking about, the North American monsoon is just a natural flow of moisture that comes up through Mexico, out of Central America, uh, also the Gulf of California, the Gulf of Mexico. And during the month of June, we usually start to see this moisture manifest itself into the formation of showers and thunderstorms over Arizona, New Mexico, sometime the deserts of of California as well. And then as we get into July and as we get into August, there's usually a more northward expansion of that moisture getting into the central Rockies and parts of the southern plains, the western southern plains and the central plains. And a lot of the July and August and early September precipitation in many parts of the Southwest and Western United States comes from this pattern. And what drives it, what really gets it going, is just the natural process of the heat that builds in the summer. When the deserts start to get really hot, that causes pressure patterns to change, that helps draw that moisture along the divide and northward. Now, what we had last year was a very robust monsoon season. We saw great rain last summer Mm -hmm. in Arizona and New Mexico, parts of southwestern Texas, then uh, especially uh, Colorado had a really good monsoon season last year. But this year's different. It's, It's been delayed. Usually it really gets into gear about now. But what's interesting about the fact that it's not kicking into gear yet is because it was so cool this winter uh, in the desert southwest. I mean, for the first 
five months of 2023, temperatures have been below average. And that has kept the deserts cooler. It's also kept the water temperatures in the Gulf of California and the Gulf of Mexico, but especially the Gulf of California near that Baja area. The the temperatures are off to a late start. Mm -hmm. And the temperature is really what starts to drive that monsoon pattern. So what it means is it's going to be a shortened monsoon which means it won't be as productive as it was last year. And it's going to be off to a later start. So it, it's probably a couple of weeks from before it really kicks into gear. So while the rain and the snow this winter in Arizona and New Mexico was great, they're going to see a little bit of a deficit early in this monsoon season with its late start. Mm-hmm. But the pattern when it does start will probably be similar to what we've seen in the past where it comes up from there and is far north. I mean, you said you said before that it can far north as maybe Montana, but it kind of the, the thoroughfare of it is through Nebraska, South Dakota line as it curves to the east. Is that just a pattern that it's going to stay? And I'm mainly asking this because I'm wondering, is it going to affect anything? It's been dry in the Midwest. Are they going to see anything eventually? Well, yeah, that's a that's a good point, because a lot of times some of this same subtropical moisture can work its way into the Corn Belt. If you look at some of the big floods historically uh, in the Corn Belt and Midwest, it's been partially due to this pattern. Um, but it, I think that since it's getting a late start and we're noticing that the jet stream here all the way into the middle of June is still taking a more southerly route, what that tends to do is bottle up the monsoon more into Arizona, New Mexico, uh, and more along Interstate 70 and as far north as I-80. Now, at times it will surge northward, mm-hmm. but I think it's going to take more of that southern route, which means I, I think that the Midwest and Corn Belt will be getting some rain, but I'm still expecting, especially that northwest Corn Belt, Iowa, eastern Nebraska, parts of Missouri and northeast Kansas, Minnesota, uh, and, and eastern South Dakota, it's it's not going to be enough for them to to kind of right the ship, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I think that part of the Corn Belt is going to end up in a moisture deficit for the whole season. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Don, appreciate the update. Thanks for joining us here this week. Thank you. And again, that is meteorologist Don Day with a look at our long-term weather. His website can be found at dayweather.com. That's where I go every morning to take a look and listen to what he's got in store for our weather forecast for the day. You can find a link to his daily video podcast. Our weather today brought to you by AllFlex. Cattle identification and record keeping should be easy. Learn more at AllFlexUSA.com. Well, stay with us. Coming up after the break, we'll put a wrap on this week's show when we come back on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Well, coming up on next week's edition of the Working Ranch Radio Show, you're not going to want to miss it. We're going to be talking cattle market outlook as Brett Stewart with Global Agri-Trends will be joining us to talk not only on what he is seeing for our U.S. and domestic cattle supply and and herd numbers, but also we're going to look at that from a global perspective as well. And let me just put it this way. Things are looking pretty up. They have been, and he's got some information that I think will give us a lot more insight of what this cattle market's going to do for the coming years. So be sure to tune in next week as we talk with Brett Stewart of Global Agritrends on our cattle market outlook. Just want to remind you that, uh, again, you can catch any of our shows by going to our podcast website at workingranchradio.com. And if you hear something, uh, let us know. Give us a thumbs up. Give us a like, whatever, however you're listening to it. Comments. We appreciate those comments as well. And if you have questions, you can sure send me an email at justin.workingranch at gmail.com. Thank you to our sponsors today, AllFlex, Inherit Select from Zoetis, the American Galvey Association, MLS Tubs, and Tank Toad, your remote water monitoring system. It's what we use here on the X-Ring Ranch. Well, the Working Ranch Radio Show is a production of Working Ranch Magazine, branded number one by America's ranchers. And let me tell you, if it's not sitting on your kitchen table right now or in your mailbox, it will be soon. It's the latest issue of Working Ranch magazine and as always it's plum full chuck full of great articles that are very useful to all of us here in the ranching industry if you don't have your subscription you can simply get it started by going to workingranchmag.com well be sure to join us at the same time same place next week or on your favorite podcast provider i'm your host justin mills and until next time keep your chin down and your mind in the middle so long